have, have you ever made a decision in the moment without giving consideration to any long-term effects? Have you ever done something that you thought better of after the fact? As a senior in high school, I was all but forced to take early bird chemistry. Now, there are two problems wrong with what I just said, early and chemistry. (laughs) There are three types of students. There are students that are gifted in mathematics and science. There are students that are gifted in English and composition. And then there was me. I was really good at recess, PE, and lunch. As a byproduct of choices earlier on in my academic studies, I was at a place my senior year where I had credits to make up. And the only way to do that was by making up a science credit. And the only credit that was available to make up with the schedule that I had was an early bird chemistry class. So I was in class and it was a Friday. And I know that it was a Friday because I was wearing my football jersey. I don't know, I'm assuming it's probably similar across the country still to this day, but on varsity football day, Fridays, the football team would wear their jerseys and the cheerleaders would wear their cheerleading outfits at school. I was in early bird chemistry. I was standing at my station with several of my peers, friends that I got to share in this experiment with. The teacher was saying some things. There was a point in time in which Each station sent a delegate up to grab some potion from the teacher's desk after saying some stuff. And typically the teacher would allow whatever it was we were working with to be at our station in advance, but this was different. We had to go up and get it. And so I made my way from our workstation to the front of the classroom and to the teacher's desk and I grabbed this potion. And as I turned around, the the dropper came loose from the vial and the potion spilled all over my jersey and the glass hit the the floor and I turned around not thinking much of it and I went back to the front of the class and I asked the teacher if he had any extra potion and he said well what happened to the one I gave you and I said oh I, I dropped it he said where and I said well there's some of it over there but on my shirt in a matter of moments I was disrobed in front of my peers. Jersey came off, undershirt came off. I am now being doused with baking soda and then from the baking soda bath taken to a tiny little closet adjacent to the classroom, almost like a Jack and Jill bathroom with another science classroom on the other side where they proceed to shower me, baking soda and all, in front of my classmates. You would think that as an 18-year-old high school boy, this was embarrassing. I loved it. (laughs) They sent me home. And when I got home, I had the outline of the Dominican Republic on my chest. What chest hair I had coming in as an 18-year-old was no longer. They had to continue to, I had to wash it off and monitor it and had to go back to school. And it turns out, as I went back to talk to the teacher and had to make up some classwork, that what he was saying when I wasn't listening was that sulfuric acid, oh, you've done this experiment? Was, was incredibly dangerous and highly toxic. And even in whatever distilled state that this was in, it still had enough potency that it ate through my jersey and began to burn my chest. So I went to high school and had to go to the coach and get a new jersey. Well, game day was that day, and so they grabbed the only jersey they had left, which was a wide receiver's number, so I was a schmedium that day. That was the only day I've wore a crop top in my life. <laughs> that impact of that decision in that moment, I did not give consideration to when he said, don't grab the vial by the eyedropper, hold it firmly in your hand by the base of the glass container. 
I was in that moment so distracted with things or people that I was myopic in my hearing and wasn't paying attention. That decision, although comical, it really did impact several other people. And I think that it's an example of how oftentimes in our lives we make decisions in the moment, whether based on emotion, desire, false information, misinformation, whatever it is, we make decisions in that moment without giving consideration to long-term impact in our own lives and in the lives of others. This last week, I had a very honest and a very sober conversation with one of my daughters. When she asked me this question, Dad, what is it in your life that you regret the most? And that Rolodex of choices began to recycle through my mind. And as I thought about that question and the obvious answers, plural, there was a common denominator. And the common denominator when distilled down for me was simply this. The things that I regret most in this life are the decisions that I've made, the choices that I've made that not only impacted me, but hurt others around me. Today, maybe you relate. Maybe there's a part of you that can at least appreciate with me decisions that we've made, decisions that we're making based on false information or emotions or whatever the circumstantial desire is in this moment where we haven't or aren't giving consideration to long-term impact either of ourselves or others around us. Today, as we pick up in this historical narrative study of the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to be in chapter 22, and we're going to see multiple examples in one story of consequences and choices. We're going to see how one person's decision, one person's choice impacts countless others, but we're also going to see how God can redeem it and use it for our good and his glory. Let me invite you up front to grab your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you this morning, please, would you raise your hand and let one of our ushers bring you a Bible as a gift? It's yours to have and to keep. Just simply raise your hand unapologetically and say, hey, I'd love to have a Bible. Each and every week, we encourage you to come with your Bible in hand and with something to write on and to write with so that you can follow along. You can write down observations and take notes, different applications. You know, it's our hope that we rightly divide God's word here on Sunday morning, presenting it with equal parts authenticity and accuracy, but also in ways that matter and make sense so that you're well equipped to go throughout the rest of your week and continue to study God's word, meditating on his precepts and allowing them to, to change from the inside out who we are and how we live our lives. And so we just encourage you each and every week to bring the Bible with you. If you were here last week, then you know that Pastor Russell preached the lights out of the building. Can I just tell you how grateful I am to have an amazing teaching team? Here's what you don't know. Last Saturday at 4 o'clock, I said, hey, Russell, I've got a double sinus infection and a double ear infection, and I can't preach tomorrow. What are you doing? <laughs> Russell agreed to preach or lose his job. And so he, <laughs> we met up at Scooter's and... We walked through the text together, exploring the passage together, sharing thoughts and ideas and praying together. And then Russell delivered an incredible message about relationships, relationships between David and Saul's family and David and Ahimelech, the, the priest and Nob and the priests and choices that were made and how David ends up from Nob and the showbread and into the presence of Gath where he changes how he's even perceived by others. He changes how he acts based on who he's around. We wouldn't know anything about that, would we, church? But how David pretends to be insane, and everything that he's doing is all about self-preservation. The people of Gath realize that it's David, this giant slayer, the Goliath killer, that is in the territory of the giant that he killed, and they, they go to, to the king of Gath, and they say, what are you doing with this man here? And the king says, why are you bringing a crazy man to me? I'm already surrounded by all y'all who are crazy enough. I don't need another crazy to be in my camp. 
But that's where we're going to pick up today is David is now on the heels of pretending to be something that he's not. He's running away from Gath and into this next part of our story. Would you pray with me as we transition into the text? Father, we're going to spend the next few moments together where I pray that as we read your word together, that it would become active and alive in us. I thank you for the privilege and the responsibility to be a bearer of truth. And Father, I pray, as I've already mentioned this morning, that I would preach with authenticity and with accuracy and in ways that matter and make sense and all for your glory and our good. God, I pray that as we study this text, there are twists and turns in this text that are really difficult, hard for us to understand, not intellectually, but even emotionally. I pray that you would capture our, our hearts. And Lord, may we be, may we be open and willing to receive from you today. Convict us where we need convicting. Change us where we need to be changed. And in all things, ready us to encounter you. We pray in Jesus' name. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift, holy and pleasing to you alone, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel 22. Beginning in verse 1, we are going to look at a couple of parallel passages today. We'll get there. But let's jump in. David left Gath and escaped to the cave at Adullam. It's about 10 miles east of Gath before Jerusalem. And soon his brothers and all of his other relatives joined him there. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble, men who were in debt or who, who were just discontented until David was the captain of about 400 merry misfits. There's a couple of things that are really interesting about this text. This is the first time that we hear about David's brothers for quite some time. The last time that we heard about David's brothers, there was a young boy who was sent by his father, Jesse, who was keeping his father's flock to go to the battle lines where opposite the Israelites were the Philistines. And as David comes upon the battle lines, he sees this giant Goliath from Gath come out and he's defying the armies of the living God. And David asks this question, what's going on, guys? We're the nation of Israel. We're God's chosen people. What are we doing standing idly by and allowing this giant from Gath to defy the armies of the living God? Eliab, David's oldest brother, will call into question David's intentions and his motivations, the matters of his heart. He'll say, David, what are you doing here? I know why you're here. You just wanted to see a fight. You're just being selfish. You're here for all of the wrong reasons. You had one measly little task. That was to care for the few sheep that our father has. But instead, you're here and you have no business being here. This is the relationship dynamic that is shared between David and Eliab. Now, we don't hear anything about David's family other than his wife, Michael, until now. And what we hear is that David flees Gath He's on the run, a fugitive from justice, and he ends up somewhere between Gath, the Philistine territory, and Jerusalem, where Saul is at. And he's sitting in the side of a cave, and now his family starts to join him. So why is his family joining him, especially Eliab, who can't stand his brother? Because of David's choices, the consequence of his actions... His family is no longer welcome in community. You see, because of the way David is, is living his life. Now, now, granted, some of it has nothing to do with his choices. He's been faithful to Saul. He served as the captain of Saul's army. He, he was a, a musician that would help calm Saul during those moments in space where he was overcome with evil spirit in him. But then there's also these spaces where David is creating this turmoil and conflict. So because of the relationship that David shares with Saul, his family is no longer safe. The only thing that they can do is find and follow David. So now not only do you have his brothers and his family finding and following David, but you've got other individuals. And I, I think it's interesting that we need to stop and point out that it's mentioned those who had trouble and those who were in debt. And the reason that that's interesting is if I were to ask you very rhetorically, now I don't want you to raise your hand, 
But if I were to ask you, how many of you have debt? How many of you have a mortgage payment or a, or a car payment or a credit card payment? Did you know culturally, as we read this narrative, what we need to understand is that it was actually against the law to be in debt. That it was punishable. If you had debt to someone, they could actually call. The recourse was imprisonment or even physical punishment. There, there, was, there, was, this, there was this inherent danger that went with, with debt. And then we see these other individuals who are just discontented with the way life is. They're disillusioned with how things are. And so they fill this cave in Adalom with David. And I do think it's interesting to point out that David is not called the leader of these misfits. He's called the captain of this army. And we're going to see into next week, as we study chapter 23, how God can take what has been reduced down to almost nothing by the enemy and use it for his glory and our good. So here David is in the side of this army, or in the side of this mountain with this army. Verse 3, later David went to Mizpah in Moab, where he asked the king, please allow my father and mother to live here with you until I know what God is going to do for me. So David's parents stayed in Moab with the king during the entire time David was living in his stronghold. If you would hold your finger here in 1 Samuel and turn back toward the left just a little bit to the book of Ruth, Chapter 4, if you're looking for it, you can find it starting at the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. Ruth is an amazing story about a faithful woman whose husband has passed away and her brother-in-laws have passed away. And rather than abandoning her mother-in-law, Naomi, she chooses to follow her into this community. And there God will through miraculous means, not only sustain her, but her mother-in-law and family, and she will end up marrying a man named Boaz. And we read about this family that they create together in Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And if you don't have time to find it, write it in the margins of your Bible or on the notes you're taking and turn back and study it this week. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor woman said, now at last Naomi has a son again and they named him Obed. And Obed became the father of Jesse and Jesse was the grandfather of David. There's this family line that comes out of this humble home in Moab. David, while on the run, is concerned about the welfare of his parents, knowing that this is no lifestyle for an elderly, aging couple like this, he, he puts himself out there and he goes to family, distant cousins, and he asks for favor in their eyes. Would you please keep my family safe until I know what the Lord has for me, until I know what the Lord wants to do for me? Now we see in verse 5, on the heels of this, back to 1 Samuel 22, verse 5, one day the prophet Gad told David, Leave the stronghold and return to the land of Judah. And so David went to the forest of Hereth. The news of his arrival in Judah soon reached Saul. At the time, the king was sitting beneath the tamarisk tree on a hill in Gibeah, holding his spear and surrounded by his officers. This is interesting to me that he's not at home in the palace. He's not in one of his stays. He's literally out underneath a tamarisk tree, which means that he's looking for shade. And it lets us know that he's also on the lookout for David. He's got a spear in his hand. And we've read now four other occasions where when he has a spear in his hand, it doesn't end well. He's throwing that spear at David three times. And then the last time we see that Saul is at hand and spear is when he throws the spear at his own son, rightful heir to the throne, Jonathan. So what does this tell us? What we can deduce from reading this, the fact that he's not at home in his palace, the fact that he's surrounded by his military might and men, and he's got spear in hand, is this represents power and pursuit. 
Saul is pursuing David, spear in hand, ready at any moment to strike if he sees this man. And he hears, even at the sound of David's return, listen to this emotional outcry. We are going to see now a stark contrast, the difference between feelings and facts. In verse 7, listen here, you men of Benjamin, Saul shouted to his officers when he heard the news. Has that son of Jesse, again, reduced down to his family line, not even using, omitting his name, will not let the name of David cross his lips, reminding everyone that he comes from a humble shepherd's home. Will that son of Jesse promised every one of you fields and vineyards? Has he promised to make you all generals and captains in his army? Is that why you've conspired against me? For not one of you told me when my own son made a solemn pact with the son of Jesse. And you're not even sorry for me. Think of it. My own son encouraging him to kill me as he's trying to do this very day. Well, there's a couple of things here that are going on. Number one is who he's attacking. Overwhelmed by his emotion, his outburst is at the people who are closest to him. He's the son of Kish, who's of the tribe of Benjamin. This outcry, he says, listen here, you Benjamites. These are not just parts of the tribes of Israel that are serving at the king's behest. These are those who are closest to him. Many of them probably related to him. He is attacking those closest to him. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been so overcome with feelings and emotions that your first response is to attack those closest to you? And these just aren't any men. These are the men that are mighty men in his military that are there to protect and to serve the king. What is it about feelings that we become so overcome with feelings that we attack those that are closest to us that are there to serve and protect us? The honest answer is, well, it's a safe place. But that's a sorry excuse, a painful justification for the way we treat those that are closest to us. And I'm not exempt from this. Thursday morning, I treated one of my children with contempt. You see, I was frustrated by circumstances surrounding me. My child in question didn't do anything to deserve the treatment that I gave that child. Now, I can explain it to you. I'm frustrated because I've got a double sinus infection. feels like I've got concrete all the way up my head. I've got a double ear infection. I literally, even right now, cannot hear anything out of my left ear. I'm up and down with a fever. I can't sleep. I, I, I can't go to the office. I can't go to the gym. I can't taste what I eat, so it doesn't matter. I've tested negative four times for COVID, so that's not why. I just can't smell anything to taste it. So for the first time in my life, I might even like guacamole. Who knows? No shot. Guacamole is about as good as Nebraska plays football, okay? Oh, here we go. Don't be mad at me. I'm not the one fielding the ball on the one-yard line. Don't yell at me. I'm not the one giving up the ball. Come on. Be mad all you want. I can throw the ball farther than 20 yards. I promise you that. Hey, who am I? Back to the Bible. I woke up on Thursday and I'm just frustrated. Everything is bothering me. And my child in question comes around the corner. And I was loaded for bear. And I took it out on her. She left the house in tears. I didn't say anything that was incredibly rude. or It was just my tone. It was how I treated her. My son asked me, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. The way I just treated your sister was completely unacceptable. She didn't deserve that. The next thing I did was got on my phone and made a counseling appointment for this Monday with a really good friend of mine who's also a counselor just to work through some of the frustrations. Do you know where most of my frustration, do you know why I'm mad about this son? Because I can't control it. 
That's where I find I get most mad. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're okay being out of control. But I really struggle with not having control. And so my daughter came home and I, I said, honey, I need to talk to you. She said, okay. I said, daddy made a really big mistake today the way I treated you. You didn't deserve it and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? Let's go do some retail therapy. I'm gonna buy you some stuff. <laughs> she says, dad, I wish you'd get mad at me more often. Saul takes out his anger on those who are closest to him. And the second thing Saul does is he's giving more credibility and value to feelings over facts. Have you ever done that? Like it doesn't matter if it's true or not, it's just how I feel about it. And so I'm gonna react based on my feelings. But the, the third thing that Saul does that's so dangerous is in his line of question, he says, don't any of you feel bad for me? My own son is conspiring against me, making a solemn pact with the son of Jesse to try to kill me. Don't you feel bad for me? How many of you, when you're in the middle of your moments of madness, you're not looking for rationality, you're looking for justification. You're shopping for somebody to vindicate or validate how you feel. Oh, you're so right. I can't, yeah, yeah. I do this in my own life. You know where I used to do this the most? Cold stone. If you don't know what cold stone is, it's almost as good as Chipotle. It goes hand in hand, actually. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. There used to be a cold stone in, in Omaha, somewhere over by a place where I hit a rock and cost $5,000 damage to my truck. I don't remember where it is, but cross streets of a big rock. I would go to Cold Stone and I would, yeah, you have three options. You have like it, which is kind of a cute cup, love it, which is, you know, and then gotta have it. And then there's my cup. And I would go into Cold Stone and it's really cool. It's like a buffet for ice cream. You can get whatever you want. And so I'd ask them for the graham cracker crust and cheesecake ice cream. And would you please put extra Reese's peanut butter cups in there and Reese's pieces and extra peanut butter and then some chocolate on top. And, and then they mound all, you know, like just make this huge mound and, and they play King of the Hill with their hands and they're fighting each other with the ice cream scoops. And then they, they plop it into this bowl that ends up being like a gallon of ice cream. And, and they put it over the, the counter. And at this point, I look like a St. Bernard. I just got thirsty. <laughs> and you know what I do every time? I haven't done this in a while, by the grace of God. But inevitably, when I know that I'm about to do something I shouldn't do, I look at my wife, I say, oh, you should really get some ice cream too. <laughs> it makes me feel just a little less bad about myself. That's literally what... What Saul's doing here is he's looking at the circumstances surrounding himself and he's looking for somebody to just agree with him. He's just looking for somebody to be agreeable. Have you ever done that? Even knowing that you're dead wrong, you just want somebody to be agreeable with you. Verse, verse nine. Then Doeg, uh, did Pastor Russell call him Doug last week? That fool's wrong. Then Dog, the Edomite, who's of the line of Esau. Esau, the brother of Jacob, is known as a mercenary, as a vicious, vicious man, a killer. And then Dog, the Edomite, of the tribe of Esau, who was standing there with Saul's men, spoke up. When I was at Nob, he said, I saw the son of Jesse talking to the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub. Ahimelech consulted the Lord for him. And then he gave him food and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. There's three things here that we need to pay attention to. First is omission. The second is embellishment. And the third is gossip and gospel. You see, what happens here is Dog, the Edomite, he's not from Israel. He's not of God's chosen people. He doesn't have respect for the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. He doesn't have respect for the priests, the prophets, the culture, the precepts and mandates, or even the relationship 
that has been established and to be shared between God and the nation of Israel. He only sees opportunities for his own advancement. Seen a weak moment in King Saul. It's advantageous for him then to take a circumstance that is true. He did see David in Nob with Ahimelech the priest. But what he does is he omits some information. He omits the part where David lies about why he's there. And then he embellishes. He adds a little bit to the story about what he was doing there and the fact that Ahimelech was actually consulting God, which didn't happen. What happens then is Saul looks at the information that's given to him and he receives it as gossip, or excuse me, gospel, even though it's just gossip. Have you ever done that in your life? Have you ever listened to something that someone said and actually received it as gospel, which means truth of the good news, instead of what it really is, which is gossip? We all love to share information. That's at least how we code it. When all we're really doing is perpetuating gossip. We even take pride in developing a Facebook page called Blair Gossip. I don't really know what's on there. I don't have Facebook, but what I need us to understand, somebody's got an opinion about it. What I need us to understand is this. The enemy, Satan, will do everything within his ability, this side of eternity, to take gossip and create in our own selves a sense of gospel. And we will make decisions based on misinformation. We will destroy relationships based on false information, based on omissions and embellishments. We will make poor business decisions based on gossip, based on omissions and embellishments. We will leave churches. We will actually attack the ecclesia, the bride of Christ, the body of believers. We will attack the church based on gossip because we've received it as gospel. We build whole platforms around this garbage that is nothing more than gossip, but we receive it as the gospel. And this is exactly... What this Edomite dog is doing is he's taking an opportunity to, to advance his own cause. Look at verse 11. King Saul immediately sent for Ahimelech and all his family who served as priests at Nob. And when they arrived, Saul shouted to him, listen to me, you son of a high tub. Oh, there he goes again, reducing this man down, not by his name, but by position, by family. You see, Ahimelech and all of his priests came together. They thought, oh, that's cool. It's an outing. It's a field trip. We're going to go get a tour of the, the palace and check in with the king, see how he's doing. Because they've done nothing wrong. They're going to be blindsided about what's about to take place. You see, their, their righteousness and their right in God's eyes and in the eyes of man. They've done no wrong. But look at Saul's going to ask, and I say ask loosely, four questions. There's really four allegations that he's going to fling at Ahimelech right now. But he's not really interested in the answer. He's using this line of question to accuse. What is it, my king Ahimelech asks? Verse 13. Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? Saul demanded. Why did you give him food and a sword? Why have you consulted God for him? And why have you encouraged him to kill me? as he's trying to do this very day. Well, there's some truth to this. But it's been distorted for Doeg's own benefit. Look at verse 14. Sir, Ahimelech replied, is anyone among all your servants as faithful as David? Great question. Your son-in-law? Why, he's the captain of your bodyguard and a highly honored member of your household. This was certainly not the first time I've consulted God for him. May the king not accuse me and my family in this matter, for I know nothing at all about any plot against you. And so let's look at these two questions or these two questioners. 
Saul asked these four questions. Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? Was he actually conspiring against Saul? Not at all. He didn't even know that there was a problem. David came and David lied about why he was there. He said he was there on official kingdom business. Number two, it says, why did you give him food and a sword? Did he give him food and a sword? Yes and no. It wasn't just any food. It was the showbread. It was made of the choicest flour every Sabbath day. And it was reserved to be placed out in two stacks of six or 12 total on a pure gold table set before the Lord as an aspect and an appreciation of God and a part of worship, a relationship, the, the bread of faces that they shared in this moment together. And on the Sabbath following the priest then who had made them themselves ceremonial clean and righteous before God would take it as a standard and would create provisions for themselves and they would eat this showbread. But there was an opportunity now to care for the least of these. David, who was in hiding, David, who was without food, David, who was without a place to stay, came hungry and tired and broken. And Ahimelech used this opportunity to bless the least of these. So did he care for that? Did he, sh did he give him food? Yes. But there's information missing here. The third question, why have you given this man a sword? Why have you consulted God for him? Did he actually consult God for David? And the answer is no. Go back and read. First Samuel 21, he never consults God on David's behalf. And he says, why have you encouraged him to kill me as he's trying to do this very day? You see, that's the danger when you get mixed up feelings for facts. When you operate solely based on feelings and misinformation over facts and actual findings. Now, Himalayas is going to ask three questions that are all based on facts alone. But isn't this King David your son-in-law? Check. Yep. Married my daughter, Michael. Isn't he the captain of your guard? Check. Yep, he is. And... This certainly isn't the first time I've consulted for David on your behalf. Look at verse 16. There's something bigger at play here. And this is where I told you there's twists and turns in the story that are really hard to stomach. Look at verse 16. You will surely die, Ahimelech, along with your entire family, the king shouted. What is this? Prophecy fulfilled. Remember I said that there are times where we make decisions that we don't think all the way through the consequences or how they'll impact other people? This wasn't about David and this wasn't about Ahimelech. This was a prophecy fulfilled. Watch this, watch this. Hold your finger here and go back to 1 Samuel chapter two. 1 Samuel chapter two is the story of Eli, who is the priest at the time, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They are all sinning. Eli sins because of his omission. He's not outrightly committing his sin, but he knows that Hophni and Phinehas, his two sons, are taking advantage. Get this. They're waiting for women to come into the temple, and they're taking advantage of women in church. And they're taking advantage of the fats that are reserved for God. They're basically, they're digging in the, the offering basket as it's being passed around, and they're pulling out what they want for themselves. And they're bullying people. They're overcharging for their services. They have a monopoly on what it is that they are able and assigned to do. And so they're taking advantage of people. And Eli finds out about this and he goes to Hophni and Phinehas and he says, boys, you got to stop this behavior. You're not only sinning against the nation of Israel and the people, but you're sinning against God. And this will not end well. But as Hophni and Phinehas continue to live out their sin, Eli turns a blind eye to it. Omission. He ignores it. Look at this. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 27. One day a man of God came to Eli and gave him this message from the Lord. I revealed myself to your ancestors when they were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. I chose your ancestor Aaron from all among all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense and to wear the priestly vest as he served me. And I assigned the sacrificial offerings to you priests. So why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I promise that your branch of the tribe of Levi would always be my priest, but I will only honor those who honor me and I will despise those who think lightly of me. The time is coming when I will put an end to your family so it will no longer serve as my priests. 
All the members of your family will die before their time. None will reach old age. You will watch with envy as I pour out prosperity on the people of Israel, but no members of your family will ever live out their days. The few not cut off from serving at my altar will suffer. They will not serve, they, they, they'll have suffer heart attacks and their children will die a violent death. And to prove that what I've said will come true, I will cause your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest, a remnant, who will serve me and do what I desire. I will establish his family and they will be my priests to my anointed, not appointed. You see, you see, Saul was appointed, but David was anointed. Pay attention to this. To my anointed kings forever. Then all of your surviving family will bow before me, begging for money and food. Please, they'll say, give us jaws among the priests so we will have enough to eat. Now jump back to 1 Samuel 22 and verse 16. You, Ahimelech, will surely die along with your entire family. This right here is not the consequence of anything that Ahimelech has done wrong. This is a fulfillment of prophecy because of the choice of his great-great-grandfather. Do you see that the decisions that we make are moments that matter more than we realize. Eli in that moment was just doing his best to preserve his children's lives by ignoring their wretched, wicked behavior. And in his absent parenting, he absolutely dismisses the authority of God. God will not be mocked. And in this moment, God makes this declaration that the family line of Eli will perish, but there will be a remnant that is remaining after this that will serve the anointed king. And so what we're seeing here is a twist and turn that doesn't sit well with us on the surface, but there's a greater purpose in God's sovereignty and God honoring his word. Verse 17. And he ordered his bodyguards, those Benjamites, kill these priests of the Lord, for they are all allies and conspirators with David. They knew he was running away from me, but they didn't tell me. But Saul's men refused to kill the Lord's priests because they had greater fear of the Lord than they did of Saul. Then the king said to Dog, you do it. You, Dog, uh, the Edomites of the line of Esau, the mercenaries, the killers. So Dog the Edomite turned on them and killed them that day. 85 priests in all, still wearing their priestly garments. With the Urim and Thummim, the Vespers. And then he went to Nob, the town of the priests, and killed the priests' families. Listen to this. Men and women, children and babies, and all the cattle, donkeys, sheep, and goats. If you remember back to, if you remember back to Samuel the prophet coming to Saul, when they're at war against the Amalekites. God's word to Samuel is that you tell Saul, go in there and you annihilate the Amalekites. I don't want a remnant of Amalekite near me. You kill them all, the king, all of them and all their family because the Amalekites are the ones who have bullied and oppressed the Israelites the most since they crossed over the Red Sea out of Egypt. They're the first ones that meet them there. When, when they're at war and Moses' hands are up and they're winning the war, but as his hands come down, they start to lose the war. And, and Joshua and Aaron come up and they support him. They support his arms up and they're winning the war. It's the Amalekites that they're going to war against. These are a people that hate, they hate Israel and they have no regard for God. And God says, I want you to take care of them. And Saul cares so much about himself, so much more about himself and his own welfare than he does obeying God. What he does is he goes in and he kills most of the Amalekites. He spares King Agag as a trophy and then he keeps the spoils for himself. And when he's found out, he begins to lie and say, oh, no, 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 I kept that so I could sacrifice it to the God, your God. But we learned in that, in that, in that moment that what God desires isn't our sacrifices, but a contrite heart, a broken spirit, humility in our lives. So here, God has been eradicated from the equation what Saul was commissioned to do by Yahweh but didn't follow through. He is now doing against the people of Yahweh. He's now sending Dog into the nation of Israel to kill off the priests and their families, leaving not a remnant for them. Look at here, verse 20. Only Abiathar, there's that remnant, there's that prophecy fulfilled, going back to 1 Samuel 2. One of the sons of Ahimelech escaped and fled to David. Verse 21, when he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord, verse 22, look at David. He exclaimed, I knew it. When I saw Dog the Edomite there that day, I knew he was sure to tell Saul. And now I have caused the death of all your father's family. 
I've done this. Stay here with me and don't be afraid. I will protect you with my own life for the same person wants to kill us both. Turn with me finally to the middle of your Bible to the Old Testament book of Psalm and 142. Psalm 142. You've got this juxtaposition between the way Saul approaches life and responsibilities and David. Saul, in the moments of his madness, is justifying his junk and he's looking for somebody to validate his decisions and vindicate him and is accusatory of everyone and everything around him. And David, in this moment, sees the devastation and destruction of his lies. You see, he showed up in Nob before Ahimelech and he lied about what he was doing there, that it was official business, and he lied to, to, to keep himself alive, self-preservation. And in the midst of his lies, it continued to snowball. He ends up in Gath and he's pretending to be someone that he's not, something that he's not, and it continues to snowball. And his actions carry great consequences and not just for himself, but for others. You see, in his own life, he's now living as a fugitive on the run inside of a cave in Adullam, unsettled in all of his ways. But now because of his choices, there are consequences that are so much greater than his own position in life. It's cost Ahimelech, and the priests, everything. There's this beautiful space that David creates in his life where he reflects on those choices that he's made. And in Psalm 142, he writes this incredibly authentic prayer that is directly correlated with his time in the caves in Adullam on the run from Saul. And I wonder in my own mind, in the same way that my daughter said, Dad, what are your greatest regrets? If maybe David's daughter didn't come to him and say, Dad, what do you regret in life? And that Rolodex of choices, of words, of attitudes and actions and inactions begins to rewind in his mind. And he begins to think about all of the decisions of his life, the culmination of his life. And when he's asked this, this question, what do you regret most? He, he pins this authentic, this honest, heartfelt prayer in Psalm 142. Now, I want to set the stage for us because it's going gonna, it's gonna to help us bring full circle our time together today. I want you to remember where David is writing from. He's, he's in the side of, of, of a cave in Adullam, and he writes this, I cry out to the Lord, I plead for the Lord's mercy. I pour out my complaints before him and tell him all my troubles. When I'm overwhelmed, and can we all agree that he's overwhelmed? You alone know the way I should turn. Wherever I go, my enemies have set traps for me. I look for someone to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit about what happens to me. Then, in the moments of my madness, when I've been reduced to rubble, I pray to you, O oh Lord, and I say, you are my place of refuge. You are all I really want in life, my soul's desire. Hear my cry, for I am very low, Rescue me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Look at verse 7. Highlight verse 7. Give strong consideration to verse 7. Let's think on this together. Bring me out of prison so I can thank you. The godly will crowd around me, for you are good to me. Bring me out of prison so that I may thank you. Is David in prison? I mean, just, just as a point of comparison, in the New Testament, you have an author named Paul who writes these epistles, these letters. And a lot of times he'll introduce, I, Paul, writing from prison in Rome. That's a very literal statement. He, he's been in prison in Rome multiple times under house arrest and also in the bottom of a dungeon where he's been chained to a wall in absolute darkness 
And when Paul writes these letters to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, he's literally writing from prison. But David, is he in captivity? Is he being held against his own volition? Is he in chains? Well, the answer is no. Physically speaking, he's in the side of a cave in Adullam. But metaphorically, because of his choices, he is being held captive in his own mind's eye and heart. And what I love about this contrast is that here in this moment, what we've seen from David, this military might, where he's so used to strategizing and, and getting all the men, hey guys, we got 400 of you around, let's, let's, let's go ahead and grab some rocks and we'll We'll create a perimeter and I'll show you how to do this. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna strategize and we're gonna end up going back into, into Judah. And as we come up around the mountainside, here's what we're gonna do. You see, this would have been very par for the course because he's in self-preservation mode. But what, what David does as he sees this priest who has lost everything standing before him is he realizes that the consequences of his choice has cost not only himself, but everybody around him everything. And he goes from strategizing to surrender. He says, Lord, because of my choices, because I lied, because I, I've been running, because, because of all of the things that I've said and done, some that are beyond my control, but others within my control, I am literally living in prison. I am a prisoner in my own mind. I am a prisoner, though free, I can't even leave the side of this cave. I am being held captive by the things that I've said and done. I am a prisoner. Lord, please come and free me. I surrender. I give up. Here's the white flag. God, I surrender. Free me from prison so that I can thank you and be surrounded by godly people who will walk with me. If we're being honest right now, so many of us in this space here and online, we, we've become exceptional at self-preservation. We're moving the pieces around and we're strategizing. We're planning our next move. But can we just be honest for a moment? And in the still quiet space of our hearts, can we just admit that it was our choices that got us here in the first place? And not only us, but the things that we've said and done have had tremendous impact on others. Can we look at the things that we've said and done with sober judgment? And then I beg you, let's move from strategy to surrender. Satan, with everything, wants us to live in captivity prisoners of our sin prisoners of our sin prisoners of ourselves prisoners of our thoughts prisoners of our words prisoners of our choices he wants us to live as prisoners but here's what I know to be true is that the word of God promises in John 3, 16 and 17 that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that if we would just believe in him, we would be set free from this captivity for eternal life. And how do I know this? Because the Bible says in verse 17 that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn us, but to save us. And here's what I know about his salvation. The Bible says that those who are free in Christ are free indeed. The band's gonna come out right now and I wanna create a moment, a space for us to simply reflect on this, on this time that we've had in the text today. But let's wrestle honestly and earnestly with the captivity of ourselves. Where are you holding yourself captive? Where are you a prisoner of your own words and your own actions or inactions in your own minds? You see, here's what I wanna promise you about the way the, the, that the Lord works. Remember I, I started off, I said there's three types of students, math and, math and science and English and comp and then me. 
I'm not a mathematician, but here's, here's what I know. That a line without points is how long? That's not rhetorical. How long is a line without points? Infinite, which means it goes on and on and on forever. It's infinite, the line, the distance, the separation between the two. Why is that important? Because the Bible says that as far as the east is removed from the west, that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. The Bible says that he has taken and he has buried in a sea of forgiveness all of our sins, all of our trespasses. We are found innocent in his eyes. We are freed from the slavery of sin and the bondage that keeps us. The choice that we have today is a choice of surrender, of soul surrender. Will you continue to strategize or will you surrender and say, Lord, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. And here's my offer, my invitation. I love that David says at the end of this prayer, Father, if you would set me free, I want to thank you with my life. I'll be grateful. I want to thank you with my life. You see that? He says, set me free so that I can be thankful to you, Lord, and surround myself with a host of others who love you and follow you. Today, in mere moments from now, we are going to have this opportunity, this very opportunity. And you say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Listen to me. In just moments, we're going to get to walk out of these doors and we're going to step outside. And as we step outside, there's a flatbed trailer with a horse trough, I mean baptismal. And it's an opportunity for us as surrendered followers of Jesus to publicly thank God for saving us from being imprisoned in our sin. It's an opportunity for us to go and publicly declare for everybody, I've surrendered all that I am and all that I have, I give to Jesus. I've surrendered. Lord, I want to say thank you. I'm thanking you, and I'm doing it in the public eyes and witnesses of those who love Jesus as well for accountability and for encouragement and for celebration. And you're not alone. I think I heard there's at least 11 people that are going to be baptized right after this service. And not only that, but don't you dare go home because we've catered smoke on arrival barbecue. And they're going to be here, and we're going to feed you barbecue. And, and, and we've got an opportunity to hang out and celebrate with these who have said, Lord, all that I am and all that I have, I surrender to you. And so here, it's in two part. One, please stay, please stay. And let's cheer on those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus. But number two, maybe today is that day, that next step where you have to go public with your faith and say, Lord, I don't want to be living in captivity anymore. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God and I've been set free. You say, Pastor, I didn't come prepared to get baptized. Uh, are you here? Well, yes, sir. We've covered the rest of the details. We've got extra clothes for you. We've thought, we've thought of, I've got a really smart staff. We've thought of everything. Women, we've got makeup and perfume and everything else you could imagine. I'll leave it at that. Guys, we got hair gel and cologne. We got, we, we got, we got, we got it all. We've literally, and by the way, when you get baptized, we're going to give you clothes to get baptized in. And you get to keep the shirt. As a, as a remnant, as a reminder of your decision today. There's no reason that you, oh, pastor, shouldn't I pray about it? Are you serious? The Bible says, believe and be baptized. Yeah, let's pray. Father, should we be obedient to what you've called us to? Oh, amen. The Lord just said, if you believed in him and haven't been baptized, you're getting wet today. Well, don't I have to sign up? Yeah, as soon as you're done, go outside and find, find, find me or this guy. You can't miss him. Look at that. Don Johnson over there. Magnum P.I. Playing the bass and singing like Paul McCartney. Yeah, I played the bass a couple weeks ago. You think you got to do it better? And just, let me, just let me have a moment. You are pretty in that shirt, though. I'm not going to lie. You married a pretty man, Rachel. Come find one of us. We would love to help you get ready to get baptized. 
Not an easy message to give, but I encourage every one of us to wrestle with it. Where are we being held captives? By the enemy, by his lies, by our own feelings of fear and inadequacy when the facts are those who are free are free indeed. Church, we get to go live out of freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.